0: You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen, and thank you to our music ministry team for leading us in worship this morning. If you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 21 verses 20 through 25. Again, that is John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25. And uh, today we are going to be, Lord willing, finishing the gospel of John. As you're turning there, I just want to share uh, a little bit of a a story with you this morning. Uh, Every year around Christmas time, we have some traditions in our family, just as I'm sure you do. When the holidays approach, there are certain things that we do every single year, one of those traditions in our house is that we watch the movie White Christmas. That is just one of the things that we do every single year. And if we don't do it, we would be seriously uh, in a bad way. Right? But the, the Bing Crosby classic is one of our favorites. And in that movie, at the end of the movie, they're throwing a celebration for their former general. And they sing this song called The Old Man. And um, if I'm being honest, I always thought it was kind of funny that they're celebrating him and the whole time they call him an old man. But uh, the, the song is this funny song about how life in the army meant no responsibility in a life of comfort. But in the beginning, they're singing about the general's leadership and how they're going to follow the old man anywhere he wants to go. And then they say this line, We'll stay with the old man wherever he wants to stay, as long as he stays away from the battle's fray. The funny line shows us that there was a limit to their following, right? There is still some conditional element. And I think if many of you are honest, it's how we as people work as well. Oh, I I will follow the Lord anywhere he wants to go. Unless he wants me to go somewhere I don't want to go. I'll follow Jesus with everything except this one relationship. I'll follow Jesus with everything except my finances, or I'll follow Jesus with everything except my attitude toward my spouse. I'll follow Jesus with everything except the things I watch, or the way I spend my time, or the things I do when no one is around. We can go through the list, and many of us would claim we'll follow the Lord wherever he wants to go until it impacts something that we want to do. Listen, there's not one single area of your life that doesn't need to follow Christ. Uh, The famous uh, theologian Abraham Kuyper, he said it this way. He says, there's not a single inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not one area, there's not one little thing in our life that doesn't belong to Christ. It's not his. And so if you're a believer, every single part of your life is his. Because you were bought with a price. And so today, our message, it's all about following Christ more closely. You see, we saw last week that Peter was restored. And then we saw that Peter was called to follow Jesus. In the same way, we are called to follow Jesus. But we're not called to follow him halfway or half-heartedly. We are rather to follow him faithfully. And so let's look at this message that I have titled, Following Faithfully, from John 21, 20 through 25. And so if you are physically able, please stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word. Verse 20 says, that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, we thank you so much for the blessing and honor and the privilege of being able to gather together as a body of believers to worship your name. Lord, for the the honor of being able to to come together and read your word. Lord, to, to pray and you hear our prayer. Lord, to sing these rich songs Glorifying you. Lord, we realize that this is a distinct privilege that we are given as believers. And Lord, we thank you for it. May we not take the relationship we have with you for granted. But Lord, rather, may we recognize that we were bought with a price. That every area, every inch of our life is yours. And so, Lord, as we look into your word today, we pray that you would help us to follow you more closely. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to be people who are, again, honoring you and glorifying you in every area of our life. And, Lord, we ask simply today that you would show yourself to us. Lord, you would make your will abundantly evident to us. Lord, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear hearts and minds to understand what your perfect and sufficient word has for us. Lord, convict us, strengthen us, equip us, and unite us around the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, Lord willing, in a few short moments, we will have worked verse by verse through the entire gospel of John. And it has been a distinct honor and privilege to do this with you. I uh, have enjoyed it so much and looking forward to, uh, as Brandon said earlier, moving on to something else uh, and exciting in the next five weeks. Looking at a a sermon series through the five solas of the Reformation. And so uh, we hope that you will Uh, Join us for that. But as we have been working through the Gospel of John, what we've seen is that there is so much amazing truth in it. And we recognize that's obvious and apparent because it's Scripture, right? Of course, this is so full of truth. Every word in it is the perfect truth of God. But I, I hope as we have gone through this, you have seen this theme you have seen more of the amazing glory of Christ and the magnificence of our Lord. I hope and I pray that you have, you have seen God as sovereign and majestic and holy and loving and gracious and merciful, sacrificial, kind, and powerful. Because as we've gone through these texts, this is the kind of Lord we have seen revealed to us over and over and over. And in short, what we find as we look back over this book is that he is a God worth following with every ounce and fiber of our being. You see, we are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to do everything we do to the honor and the glory of God. And we saw last week where Peter was told clearly not only was he going to follow Christ, That it was going to be difficult. That it would cost him dearly in terms of his life. He would be martyred for the faith. But the text tells us that it would glorify God that Peter would follow him even to the end of his life. We end last week with Jesus telling Peter two words. Follow me. And we understand that this is a command, right? If we look at it, those two words are incredibly simple. Follow me. Again, this command is not conditional. There's no qualifier. There's nowhere in here that says follow me if you feel like it or if you have the time. Rather, this is an unconditional statement. Follow me no matter what. And the same is true for us. We are to follow him no matter what 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 so often happens is that we fail right in fact we inevitably fail we've all fallen short of the glory of God and none is righteous no not one thankfully if we place our faith in Christ and repent of our sins we're saved from that state of being dead in sin to being a new creation but the the old man tries to well up in us sometimes we're still in a fallen world. We're still in a sinful flesh that rebels against us sometimes. And so sin, unfortunately, is something we will never totally be rid of in this life. We're to put it to death to the best of our ability by God's grace, but we, we realize that we are going to fall short. But what this does is it reminds us that we all have work to do in following Christ more closely. Every single one of us here, whether you've been a believer for, for five minutes or 50 years or more, every one of us has work to do in growing closer and following Christ more closely. You see, Peter hadn't been restored five seconds before he, we see him more worried about what is going to happen to John than what he's called to do. Immediate, right? Jesus has no more finished saying, follow me, that we see Peter jump into something that he's not supposed to be dealing with. And so what I want us to see here is that this text is going to deal with the theme of following Christ. And I I just want to show us three areas of following Christ that show up in this text. Three things that will help us follow Christ more faithfully. The first one is that we don't need to focus on others. Don't focus on others. Now, you're probably hearing that going, wow, that's a weird message to hear in church. Don't focus on others. right? I'm not telling you to be self-centered. I'm not telling you not to be attentive to the needs of others or to be someone who is not sharing the gospel with others. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it comes to our following Christ. Don't focus on others. Let me explain here. Peter has been restored. Jesus has called Peter, shepherd the flock, feed my sheep, Tend my sheep." Jesus' immediate last words to Peter are, Follow me. But Peter turns and he sees John following. Now, again, the context here. John is not just any old person. We realize this. John is the disciple what? whom Jesus loved. right? That's the way that John describes this because he, again, has an understanding of the love of Christ. But John has been in this inner circle as well with Peter. And so Peter turns and he sees John following him, and we're given some context. John was the one who who leaned back against Jesus at the Last Supper. He asked Jesus who was going to betray him. You see, John has this intimate relationship with Jesus. And so when Peter sees John, Peter's focus shifts From following Christ to worrying about John. His focus shifts from what the Lord is calling him to do and and the the calling that, that God has placed on Peter's life to asking, Lord, what about this man? What about him? Peter had just been told he was going to die a martyr's death and it was going to be difficult. And he sees John, and whether it's out of some morbid curiosity or jealousy or frustration or whatever, Peter says, well, what about him? What's his destiny? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to get martyred too? And the language here, both in Peter's question and certainly in Jesus' reply, reveals us that, number one, this is a sinful question. And number two, it's a question related to John's fate in this life. We know this because Jesus rebukes Peter, right? Obviously, that means what Peter was doing was wrong. And then also because when Jesus answers, he answers with saying, if it's my will that he not die until I return, what's it to you? You see, the the answer there reveals something about this question. Peter's concern seems to be that John is not going to have as much of a difficult time as he is. What's going to happen to him? What about him? What's he doing? But it's not just Peter. You see, the others kind of are in this as well. Verse 23 says that the saying circulated that John would not die. All the brothers, the, the disciples, the believers... The saying is going around, and, and I love it here because John himself is saying, "Hey, that is not what Jesus said. I'm telling you. He didn't say I'm not going to die. He said, "What's it to you if that's my will?" John, obviously here recognizing what was going on. But, but Peter here has a calling to follow Jesus, but his focus in this moment is not on what Jesus called him to, but on what is going to happen to someone. Else. And the implication here should be obvious for us. We don't need to focus on what everyone else is doing and what God has called everyone else to do. We need to focus on following him to the best of our ability. And, and we're going to discuss this more in a few minutes, but right now let's just discuss this issue of focusing on others. Many of you in the church are no different than what Peter was doing here in the text many of you are not following Christ the way you're supposed to because you're too concerned and wrapped up in what everyone else is doing. Our eyes are not in the place where they're supposed to be. Our focus is not on Christ. Our focus is on everything else. And that's a problem. You see, we're not to live in a state of comparison with everyone around us. You know, you can always make yourself look better or worse when it comes to comparing yourself against others, right? We can do this very easily. I've used the illustration before, uh, again, of of a person who goes to the gym, and he's in there, and he's working out, and he feels like he's doing pretty good. And this, you know, morbidly obese person comes in, and they do two minutes on the treadmill, and then they walk out, and he's going, man, I'm getting it, right? I'm so much better than these people. And then a Marine comes in. Right. And and then he gets on and he's running, you know, full throttle, he's lifting weights, he's doing all these stuff. And the man goes, Man, I am awful. You see, it's easy for us to make ourselves look better or worse. And and when it comes to comparing yourself with others, what happens is that we kind of have this in two different ways. One way is that subconsciously we're always comparing ourselves to everyone else, and then the other one is more conscious, where we say, Oh, well, you know, here's this other person who's doing something. And here I am. And what we do when we're doing this consciously is that we so often will determine who we compare ourselves with based on our feelings and our emotions at the moment. If we're feeling bad, we're going to look around and say, man, you see what so-and-so's doing? Man, they don't have it together. Their life's falling apart. Man, I'm doing all right. Or if, you know, Feeling bad about ourselves, we'll look and we'll say, Man, everybody else's life is perfect. Mine's awful. Why is mine so much worse than everyone else? And what we're doing is we're allowing our emotions to begin to dictate uh, our, our, our identity in our mind. We're allowing our emotions to begin to dictate what we do and how we feel instead of realizing that it's not our emotions and our comparisons with other people rather it's that we are to be focused on Christ and following him in what he has called us to you see others are not the standard the Lord and his word is other people are not the standard And I think what happens, and listen carefully, other people's actions are also not the justification or reasoning for doing anything. Following him to the best of our ability is. We don't do things based on what other people are doing. We do things based on whether or not it is biblical and right and true and what God has said to do. And we can use the church as an example here because comparisons are not just individual. A lot of times it happens for us corporately as a church. As well. People love to say, well, you know, that big church down the road, they're doing this. Or, oh, that poor little bitty church. Trying to, you know, take this little patronizing tone. But we need to realize that what they're doing is not the justification. Their actions are are not the reasoning That we're to do anything. You see, the goal is not to be the biggest church. It's to be the most faithful church we can be. Our goal is not to be the most popular church. It's to be the most glorifying to God we can be. And yet so often we say, oh, if we want to be like the big churches, we need to sing this music and dress like this and stop preaching that. We don't want to be like other churches and as people. We don't want to be like other people. We want to be what Christ has called us to be in the word. And so I I get frustrated because so often what I see are believers who are more concerned with what other people think about their life than what Scripture says. We're more concerned in, in keeping up with the Joneses than keeping in line with Scripture. Another one that I get all the time when I'm talking to people is, well, you know, I don't want to go to church because of the hypocrites. How often do we hear that? Oh, man, there's all these hypocrites in church. It's the same issue. Again, who cares what others are doing? You follow me. The command to follow Christ is not invalidated because others aren't doing it. This is not just comparisons with the world. You see, Peter was comparing himself with a brother in the faith. Peter was comparing himself with John. which is also very dangerous. You see, we can look at other healthy churches and other healthy believers, and we can say, oh, I wish I was like that. I wish I had more spiritual maturity, or our church had more spiritual maturity. We can look at other believers and say, you know, I wish I had the life they have. Their life looks so easy and wonderful. Why is mine so hard? And this is the issue that Peter had. It's an issue of jealousy or covetousness. Now, we realize Scripture is very clear. We're not to covet uh, our neighbor's stuff or his wife or his, you know, his things. But we're also not to covet their life. And what we see here is a problem. Peter saying, you know, I wish, you know, what's going to happen to him? Is he going to get it better than I am? And so often we say, I wish my life was like theirs. Other believers have it better. And do you know why this is so bad? It's doing a lot of things, but fundamentally, deep down, if we keep pushing down to the root of it, what we're doing is we're saying that God's plan for your life is not perfect. Ultimately. It's denying God's sovereignty and his all-knowingness and his goodness because if if you're saying this, you're essentially saying, if I had someone else's life, God would be better. And since I don't have someone else's life, God doesn't know what's best for me and I know better than him. And that is dangerous. We're all susceptible to this. It's easy. We need to realize what Jesus says here. He says, if it is my will, what is that to you? And essentially what he's saying to Peter is, you know, again, is my will not perfect and good and true? If that's my will, then what does it matter to you? It's the same idea that we see in Romans 9. Does the pot get to question the potter? No. So instead, what we see is that we are to focus on following him and executing his will for our life to the best of our ability. Realizing that he knows exactly what we need. And if he has put us in this life, this is the the thing. I love that, that passage from Esther, you know, for such a time as this. God placed every one of us where we are in the specific time, in the specific place, in everything you want to go through based on his perfect good will. We are here for a purpose and a reason. And it is to follow God in that context. So we focus on him. We follow his will. But here's the thing. I can't follow two people at one time. I can't do it. If I'm in a car and, I got, and I'm trying to follow two people and they go different paths, I can't follow both. I have to pick. And in the same way, this is where we are today. Today. As believers, we have to come to a fork in the road where we realize um, I can either focus on what everyone else is doing and try to chase what is going on in their life, whether that's the, the sinful world or even other believers. Or I can focus on and follow what God has called me to do from the clear teaching of Scripture. I can glorify him in the life that he has placed me in, and I can learn to be content in that and trust his will. Which brings us to our second point. Don't focus on others. You follow me. Right? So follow him. And this again seems so abundantly simple, but yet it's oftentimes the simple things that are so hard for us to do. You see, his answer to Peter was, what is it to you? You follow me. It's emphatic. It's powerful. If you look at it, there's an exclamation point. You follow me. And the idea here is, again, on this, this singular focus on looking to Christ and, and following Christ with everything in us. You know, I, growing up, uh, my family loved to, on a Saturday afternoon, especially in the fall when the weather's getting nice like this, we would pull out our horses and buggies and wagons, and we would hook them up and drive around the farm. Sometimes we even drive down the road to the uh, gas station to get a, a Coke. And so we had like 20 horse-drawn vehicles, right? Some of them were like wagons, some of them were carriages. But we, we got this horse from the Amish, and I remember the first time that we started to, to hook the horses up to the buggy, things were a little different than just riding the horses like I'd done my entire life. There was different tack. And specifically, the one piece that's so interesting to me was this idea of putting blinders on the horse. Now, this is something that's used kind of societally at times, where people will say, oh, you know, you have blinders on. And how, what does that mean? That's kind of negative, right, from the world. It means you don't know what's going on. You're, 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 you don't have all this, this vision and understanding of what's happening in the world. These blinders, if you don't know what they are, they're flaps that block out everything that isn't directly in front of the horse so that they won't get distracted. And what was so cool about this horse is she had, you know, as being an Amish horse, she had been through it all. She would go, and she would follow, and she even knew the lines on the road. She would stop at a stop sign, and it didn't matter if there was an ambulance beside her or anything else going on. She'd just stand there. In fact, one time she got loose, and she there she was, standing at a stop sign because she saw the line in the road. Why? The blinders, right, it creates this singular focus. Again, usually that's understood by society as an insult, but when it's understood correctly, this can be a helpful analogy for us. You see, we need to stop worrying about everything going on out here that is trying to distract us, and instead we need to focus directly on God's will for our life and following it right in front of us. We need to trust the will of God, and I'm not saying we need to be ignorant of everything going on around us, but I'm saying our focus doesn't need to be out there. We need to narrow our focus down to following Christ. We need to trust the will of God. Jesus essentially tells Peter, I have a perfect plan for John just like I have a perfect plan for you. When he invokes his will, that's what he's bringing in here. We need to trust that and press on toward the calling of Christ on our life. I thought it was funny as I was preparing this message, the verse that kept coming up in my mind is the run for glory verse that we uh, will be using next week and all the stuff. In, in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, we see this clearly referenced. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to lay aside the sin and the problems in our life that would hold us back, and we are to run the race that is set before us. We're to follow Christ. We're to follow Christ in this life that he has called us to. But what does Hebrews 2 say? Looking to Jesus, keeping our eyes on him. See, the only way we're going to run this race with faithfulness is to look to Christ. The only way that we will follow faithfully is to look to Christ. We don't look at the world. We don't look at others. We look at Christ, and we follow him. What we see is that this race is set before us, and it is Jesus who has set that race before us. The Lord has has ordained and planned everything that we're going to encounter on that race. Every rock, every pothole. And we're to run it with endurance looking to him. You know, the first thing I ever remember being taught in baseball as as a tiny kid was keep your eye on the ball, right? Keep your eye on the ball. You see, when it comes to following the Lord, it is a simple truth, but we need to keep our eyes on Christ. We only ever follow others as they follow Christ. You know, when when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that was his point. Where I follow Christ, follow me. And so we are to look to him, and, and we realize that each of us have different paths in our life that God has called us to live out faithfully. And we're to follow Jesus even if it means we are going to suffer more than others or differently than others. It's easy to look around and go, well, why is my life not like that? We always tend to see the grass as greener on the other side. But We need to realize that the Lord has a perfect plan for us just like he has a perfect plan for others. Keep our eyes on him. Remembering that he is the one who set the race before it. He is the one who marked it out. So don't focus on all this stuff. You follow him. Which brings me to our final point this morning. Which is that we need to remember that you have not arrived as a follower. You never arrive as a follower. We have two big thinking problems when it comes to thinking about Jesus. The first one is that we think of Jesus far too little. The second one is that when we do think about him, we think far too little of Jesus. Okay, We don't think about him enough, and we don't think enough of him. Right? We don't realize how big and magnificent and wonderful and glorious he is. We have a tendency to diminish Christ and what he has done. But let me tell you, our God is no small God. And what John is telling us here at the end, he says, listen, I'm the disciple, right, who's bearing witness about these things, written these things, and, and we know that this is true. We know it's true. He says, there's also many other things that Jesus did. When we go through the Gospel of John, how many amazing things did Jesus do? The, the healings, the miracles, the exorcisms, the, the uh, you know, resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus. Right? We can go through here and we see all these miracles, these wonderful things that Jesus did. And we can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we can see other things that Jesus did. But here John is telling us something that I think we fundamentally forget, is that there is so much more. There are many other things that Jesus did, and he says if every one of them were to be written, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, Jesus is infinitely greater than we can imagine. And it doesn't take much for us to understand this. You know, if we we start to look at things like the size of the universe, and yet the complexity with which it functions each and every day. Not only do we have a universe that is so massive and so wild, we have, you know, our, our bodies are so fearfully and wonderfully made. We can look at cells and atoms and all these things that the Lord has put in place. It says, literally, uh, this is something I heard this week I thought was so fascinating. It, when they look at the world and the universe, they had to invent this thing because not only uh, this force, because not only is the world uh, pushing, they're pushing forces on the universe, there's also these pulling forces. And so the scientists, they said, we don't know what it is, but something is holding this whole universe together. And we don't know what it is, so we're just going to call it dark matter. Because we can't see it. And yet, when we look in the Word, we hear that, the, that God is holding all things together. So we don't know why this whole thing is existent. We don't know why we're, why we're here in these bodies, why they function the way they do, why the universe functions the way they do. It's because God is holding it together. The Bible says that he is higher than the heavens are above the earth. God is infinitely matchless and magnificent and great and wonderful. And then when we begin to look at God's word, in the book that we do have that reveals imperfectly, and we realize that scripture, we don't need all these other books, right? John is, is saying, you know, if you wrote everything down, we, we wouldn't be able to, the world wouldn't be able to contain all this amazingness of who Jesus is. But God has given us his perfect and complete word. The Bible says it was given to us that we would have everything we needed to be complete. So we don't need all those things. And, and here's what's so crazy, as we just look in this, in this book that God has given us, and his perfect and sufficient truth that we'll talk about next week, we can plumb the depths of it, and we've been doing it for thousands of years, and we're still amazed at the depth of God's Word. We can hear a sermon on a passage that we've heard 15 times, and yet we, we, it cuts us differently. Because it's living and active. A few years back, a mathematician undertook the, uh, the goal of trying to figure out how many books can fit on the world. Right? If the world was nothing but surface with books on it, how many could fit? Right? And so they began to do the math based on average books stacked at a certain height. And, you know, and, and the answer was 1.9 sextillion books. Okay? And in order for you to understand that, that's a 1 with 21 zero, Well, it's a 1.9 right, with 21 zeros behind it. Trillions only have nine zeros for reference. Okay, we're talking about a lot of books. What does this tell us? There's always more to learn. There's always room for improvement. You are not perfect. I am not perfect. No believer has got it all perfect. We haven't arrived. We haven't come to the point where we can stop learning about who Jesus is. And I think this is something that I've talked to people. You know, I've heard that text one time. I'm good. We are never arriving as disciples. We're not perfect, but he is. He's perfect in power, love, purity, holiness, joy. He's higher than the heavens are above the earth. But yet he knows every hair on our head. He hears our every prayer. he loves us and he has relationship with us through his son even though we rebelled against a god who is so much greater and mightier and amazing than we can even fathom even though we rebelled against him he sent his son to die on the cross to redeem us to save us so that we could be in a right relationship with him what is man that he is mindful of us but yet he is. I read a story of two men listening to music, listening to an orchestra. One man was someone who knew how to read sheet music. And so they handed out the sheet music that they're going to be playing to every person in the audience so they could hear and understand this. And so when the one man is sitting there, he reads the sheet music and the orchestra's playing, he's eating it up. Because he knows every nuance, every flutter, he's following along. He understands. The other man knew nothing of music and he's bored out of his mind and he kept staring at the sheet music about to fall asleep. Friends, we cannot truly follow along or experience the joy that comes with following Christ until he changes us and gives us the ability to see it, until he opens our eyes. How does that happen? Well, through the gospel, by his grace. So if you're here today and you say, I've never followed Christ. It starts by repenting of your sin and committing to follow him in every area of your life. It's not a halfway thing. It's not come down here and get dunked and then go tell everybody you're a believer and and do whatever you want. No, it is a lifetime of commitment to following him in every single area. And so if you're a believer here today, that is what you are called to as well. And so as we close today, the application is clear. You follow him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear God, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. Lord, for the opportunity that we have to follow you. Lord, we pray that for each and every believer who's here today, every one of your people, that Lord, they would follow you and they would be inspired to follow you more closely. Lord, you would convict them and encourage them in that. You would strengthen us that we would be able to fulfill the tasks you have laid out ahead of us. Lord, keep our eyes on you. But Lord, if there's someone here today who is not following you, who's never followed you, Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes, that they would not only have the ability to follow you, but they would experience the joy that comes with it. Lord, move in our midst and have your will be done. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.